great to be back with you all after a week's vacation. I want to thank you for your prayers for both Evie and I as we stayed home a little bit. We traveled a little bit. We got to see some good friends in Texas, and that is such always such an encouragement for Evie when we get away. Um, just one of the difficult things about her life uh, with a disabling illness is the isolation and just being by herself. So the fact that there were four new walls and some different people and just getting out a little bit, it was a wonderful thing, and your prayers upheld her. And so we are profoundly grateful for you all praying for her and loving us so well. I do have to tell you, as I try to eat healthy and have been dieting and stuff, Texas is not the place to go if you're doing that. I've never seen a group of people eat so much in my life. And I mean, I had the best steak. I'm not, I'm not sure how big it was, and I didn't eat every bite, but boy, they could eat out there, and we had fun with that. But it's great to be back, great to be with my church family and our home church here, and so it's wonderful. And as we are entering into this truly sacred time on the church calendar, Holy Week, where we are entering into Palm Sunday, and then you have Good Friday and Easter Sunday, next Lord's Day, we're going to put Proverbs aside for just two Sundays. We'll get back to it in April. But we want to tackle a couple different passages where we look at some of the implications this morning of Palm Sunday, when you think about Jesus Christ entering into his city, Jerusalem, and coming in humility, and coming in weakness, and coming in probably what is such so unexpected of a way to come in as king of his kingdom. And we want to look at some of the impacts of that, some of the consequences of that. And so to do that, I want to look at Luke's second volume. See, Andrew introduced you last week to Luke's first volume. Volume one of the... I know trilogy. What do you call a two-volume sign? Three-volume is a trilogy. What is a two-volume? Is it a biology? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the... Now it's 5.30, catching up with me, Don. See, Don mentioned in Sunday school he was up at 5.30. Be lenient on him. I was up at 5.30 also, and this is a week coming back. I need lots of grace. Be lenient on me. Uh, but the second volume of Luke's work is the book of Acts. And if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10... We want to look at some of the impact of Palm Sunday, Holy Week, Easter Sunday, and what it looked like as Luke is describing this kind of movement of the gospel coming through the historical development, because the book of Acts is a historical narrative that's describing the consequences, the impact of all of these gospel events we have experienced. And this morning we want to look at this account, and I'll tie it into Palm Sunday in just a few minutes, Luke of Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, a lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement 
at what had happened to him. Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Your word teaches us, Father, what your word says about itself is that all scripture is breathed out, inspired by God, and is useful or profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we learn there that scripture is not just for information, but it has a usefulness. All scripture is for application. All scripture is to change us, to impact us. So, Lord, as we read earlier in Psalm 95 today, if you hear his voice, may we not harden our hearts, but I pray your spirit would be moving to bless the ministry of your word, that it would land upon soft hearts ready to embrace it, ready to come under it, ready to surrender to it, and to be changed by it. So have your way. Your word, which does not return to you empty or void, but accomplishes what you have set out for it to accomplish. We pray for a great multiplication and movement of your word here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it seems like whenever I go away on vacation, when I come back, I have a quote for you from the Lord of the Rings. I don't read it every time I go away, but I sure do read it an awful lot of time. And this is one of my favorite plays. Lord of the Rings happens to be, for those of you who don't know, outside the Bible, probably my favorite book to read, a novel by J.R.R. Tolkien, and towards the end of it, it is a, it's actually, some call it a trilogy, it's one book, has three sections, and towards the end of it, the last section is called The Return of the King, and in it, you've got the king, his name's Aragorn, and he's coming into a city, but he's incognito, nobody recognizes him, and nobody knows whether he is the true king or not, and so there's an old, wise woman of the city. And she says, and I quote, Ah, but the hands of the king are healing hands, and thus shall the rightful king be known. So she says, let's take him into the house of healing and see if he can heal some people. And they go into the house of the healing, and he starts, and people start coming to him, and he begins this healing work. In verse 6, what do we see? Verse 6 says, in the name of Jesus Christ, Peter and John recognize they're not the healers. They recognize it's not in their name, it's not in their power, it's not, they're the instruments. And we're going to get to that in just a few minutes. But they say, silver and gold, I can't give you that, I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. And they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Think about Palm Sunday for a second. What was Palm Sunday all about? It was the entrance of the king into his city. And what do we learn? The hands of the king are healing hands. You see as the king has entered his, his city, and I want you to think about the scripture from Luke that Al read for us just a few minutes ago. When it says, as Jesus was drawing near already on the way down from the mountain of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, I'll paraphrase that. Tell them to knock it off. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The king comes into the city, but not in the way the power brokers anticipated. Not what they were expecting. And if we were there, not in the way we were expecting. 
And in a week's time, you have this king, the true king, the Lord of the world, the king of the world, would prove and demonstrate his kingship through his death on a cross and his subsequent resurrection, defeating death and evil. And what do you have here as we look just at an account from Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, what do you see? From the throne comes newness. From the throne comes the healing. Acts describes it as a historical movement, beginning with Jerusalem, moving out to Judea, Samaria, but to the ends of the world, you have the healing of the nations. Healing that begins progressively certainly has not completed. If it was been completed, there was no use of Andrew to pray for those who have many needs. But it's certainly a healing, oftentimes much, much different because it's not always a physical. It's 3,000 people in an unnamed country coming to Christ over the years. The Lamb of God is on the move. You better believe it. Newness, healing comes from the throne. The hands of the king are healing hands. And this morning, in this account, in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts, we want to explore this account of healing, the healing of a man lame from birth. And the thesis, here's the application from this text that I want to give you, and I want you to think about for your own life this morning and ask the Spirit of God to show you. To the degree that you come under the kingship of Jesus, to the degree that you come under the throne, to the degree that right now you bring your heart under the lordship of Christ, under Christ's kingship, or you bring a relationship, or you bring a marriage, or you bring a church, or you bring a business, or you bring a community, to that degree there will be healing, there will be, and it may not be physical, but there will be restoration of who we were made to be, restoration of our humanness, of our relationship with God, with ourselves, with other people, and yes, with the world around us. To those who first heard Jesus' teaching, this teaching on the nature of the kingdom, the meaning was simple. They would say the future is now. The future has launched and come into the present. The reign of God with its healing, with its blessing, which was expected to come totally at the end of the age and the close of history, has arrived in the here and now. The future has come into the present. It's not completed yet, but it's been inaugurated into the present with Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and I don't want to forget the ascension of Jesus and the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. The message is simple. Enter my kingdom and experience its life-changing power. Taste the reality of the future now in the present. As a matter of fact, if you want to look, there was a writer, his name was Isaac Walton, and he wrote of the English Puritan Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs was an English pastor in the 17th century. And he says, of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Now we're talking about the impact and the consequences of the gospel events of Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and Holy Week. And I want you to think about something. Because do you recognize if you're a believer, heaven is in you before you are in heaven? And here's why. When Jesus entered the city to be humiliated and die on a cross in weakness, only to be exalted 
and raised from the dead to launch as the first fruits of the new creation to be ascended where he rules and reigns on high. The book of Acts says he received from the Father what was promised him, the Holy Spirit, and that is what he has poured out on his people, his church, the temple of the living God, every single one of us who are in Christ, which means what? It means heaven is in you, at least as the down payment, the guarantee. Heaven is in you before you are in heaven. The question is, to what degree are you bringing your life under its lordship, under its rule, under today, what I want to call the reign of grace. The reign of grace is the central message of what Jesus came to teach about, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? The basic idea of the kingdom is simply that God in Jesus has powerfully entered human history with the reign of grace. With a reign that reestablishes life on the basis of his redemptive power. It's the dynamic presence of God's redemptive power confronting the forces of evil and restoring life to its fullness. Beginning now, being consummated at his reappearing, his second coming. But make no mistake about it, it has begun now. And what is the role of the church as it relates to God's kingdom? Simply this, the church is God's instrument, God's agent of redemptive power responsible to bring God's power to bear on every dimension of life. Let me let you visualize it in a very simple way. God has a mission in the world. We don't have a mission. We don't have a missions department. We don't have a mission. God has a mission. And it's described in all sorts of different ways. Jesus described it as, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Evangelism is a part of it. Steve Childers likes to call the overarching mission of God the restoration of creation, which is bringing individuals back to himself, restoring life, healing, in our relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the world. So God has a mission, and you know what? And if I were God, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, okay? Listen, God, I'm not saying that at all. Don't anybody get me wrong. But if I were God, I think the simplest way would be to kind of along the lines of speak, let there be light, and there's light. To me, that's a snap your fingers, you are omnipotent, and have it be done. But you know, God is amazing. God has a mission, and he doesn't do it independently all by himself. He does it through the agency of his people, the church. And so the way I instruct people to visualize it, visualize it this way. God's building a kingdom. He's making the earth his home. And he has a toolbox. And his toolbox is the church. We are the toolbox of God. Where he's building the kingdom through us. Where his hammer, his nails, his jigsaw, his plywood, I don't know. I'm not a mechanic. I don't know any other tools out there. But we are his toolbox. So the role of the church as it relates to God's kingdom is that for the church, heaven has already begun. God is building his kingdom, and he's doing it through us. Jesus has brought the reign of God, and he has brought it to begin, to be launched, to be inaugurated here. And what we learn from this particular text is three things about the reign of grace.
Three things that are the impact of these events of Holy Week. We learn, first of all, our desperate need of the reign of grace. We learn about the present living reality. It's not just a future reality, it's a present living reality. And then we learn of the propulsion of the reign of grace. Need reality and it's outward like a propelling engine. It propels you out. Let's take a look at each one of these. First of all, look with me at verses 1 and 2. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour. So here comes God's toolbox, in this case the church, Peter and John. They're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, none of these things are by accident. God is sovereign and in God's providence, a man came from birth, was being carried. He was lame from birth and he was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now let me tell you a little bit about how Luke, in this second volume, how he kind of structures things. Okay? Because the structure he adopts in chapters 3 and 4 is the same as what he did earlier on in chapter 2. What he does, first of all, is he describes a miraculous, a miraculous event from a spectator's point of view. So in the beginning part here of chapter 2, or and then in the beginning of part of chapter 3, you've got the description of event. Chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Chapter 3, the healing of the cripple. Next, Luke will record a speech by Peter that explains and interprets the event. He preached a sermon at Pentecost. You remember that? He said, hey, fellas, we're not drunk. Let me tell you what's going on. And he explains it does the same thing later on in chapter 3. So you have the explanation of the event. And finally, and here's the reason why. The reason why is because, as Paul writes in his letters, the grace of God is never in vain. He describes the implications or the consequences, the effect of the event. The end of chapter 2 was a spirit-filled church, worshiping, learning, evangelizing, doing mercy. And here you've got the church in action. Chapter 4, you'll see an action-filled church, praying, sharing, being persecuted. One of the things I want to point out about this is the historicity of this particular incident. This literally happened. It's literally too. Andrew described last week about how Luke, Dr. Luke, as a physician, describes eyewitness accounts, and he's, just, he's doing the same thing. Look at the details here. He makes the comment they're going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. The precise detail has the mark of an eyewitness account. If this were a myth or a legend, legends don't contain such unnecessary details. Now, what are some of the things we learn out of this? Well, first of all, we learn that this is a concrete picture for us of our desperate need for grace. The 20th century English preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote of this particular passage. He says, This man laid there by the beautiful gate of the temple is a picture of humanity in a state of sin. He says, What we have here, he tells us, look at humanity as it is pictured here in this cripple, in this beggar, outside the beautiful gate of the temple. And what are we told? What is the truth about humanity in its sinful state? First, we learn the man was born like that. He was a cripple, the text tells us, from birth. We're born into sin. He had never known any different. We have never known any different. The first truth of the gospel 
that you have to recognize is every one of us is born in sin. We are not born innocent. We are not born free from the dominion, the sphere, the realm, the kingdom, if you would, of sin. And what effect does that play upon us? What effect does that have upon us? Well, just like upon the beggar, upon the cripple, it paralyzes us. Recognize one of the characteristics of sin is paralysis. It leads to helplessness. This beggar could not walk. He was helpless. To stand by him and go, come on, walk, let's go, buck up, you should be doing better, I'll fix you, would have been useless. And in the same way do we recognize some, and this has application sometimes for how we minister people. To tell people they, and expect of people they should be doing things that they don't have the ability to do is going to lead to frustration for us and it's cruel to them. Now I want you to recognize a couple things. There are a lot of things this man could do. Okay, let's recognize what depravity is and what it isn't, in other words. Okay, the beggar couldn't walk, but he could do many other things. He could talk. He could argue. He could ask for alms. We see that. He could probably talk about the politics of the day. He could sit there and say, did you see the debate the other night? And shake his head, kind of, you know, like they were, like we would do. You're supposed to laugh at that, by the way. I'm not in mid-season form yet. I'm coming back from vacation. But there are things he could do, but recognize he couldn't walk. That was the tragedy of his life. Same thing for us. There are plenty of things we could do. There are plenty of things the non-believer can do. They can make contributions to society. They can give to the poor. They can build hospitals. They can contribute to the common good of civilization. There's only one thing they can't do. They can't honor or glorify God. They can't bring themselves to God. We're paralyzed and helpless. We need grace. Second thing, I want you to notice something else about our desperate need for grace that this story demonstrates. This story demonstrates that we usually think way too small. We usually begin by seeking far less than God wants to give us. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3, what does the man ask for? Money, alms. I can't walk. I can't do anything. I can't help myself and stuff, but could you give me five dollars? He's thinking way too small. And God gives him so much more. Yes, he gives him physical healing, but he also probably gives him community, fellowship, and salvation because later on, chapter 4, and I'm not preaching all the way from chapter 4, chapter 4 we're going to see that he takes up with a new family, a new fellowship, a new community. The community of the disciples. They could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. So now I want you to apply this. Think about your prayer life for a second and your life in Christ. When, when we usually come to God and we bring our lives to God, when we turn to God, what do we usually do? Normally it's just we go to help for a problem. Maybe we want to relieve some guilt. Or we're having a physical problem, sickness. We need to, you know, we have a decision to make. Help us. We think of that and we think of that. Now, should we stop thinking of that? No. Keep praying for those things. But I want you to enlarge, I don't want you to eliminate that. I want you to enlarge your vision. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, writes, Imagine yourself a living house, which, by the way, Peter later on says you're living stones being built into a spiritual house, so he's not far off. Imagine yourself a living house. You ask God to make some repairs. 
You ask him at first, he's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof. We need that, by the way, on our education building, if you've looked out, out of there. Tim McClure is going to be asking you for prayer on that later on. We ask that. But God has something much, much bigger in mind. Because presently, what does he do? He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. We quote, and I quote before you a lot, Romans 8, 28-30, and we know that in all things God is working together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Here's the good according to his purpose, by the way. To be conformed unto the likeness of his Son. Do you know what that means he is doing? This is the healing. When I talk about the restoration of creation and the healing from the throne comes newness of life. Here's what it is, and I'll quote one the the theologian. He is making you genuinely human again. The bigger healing, more important than any one of our little problems, and I'm not saying our problems are insignificant, is he is creating in us true humanness. He is making you a true human being. He is building you into a palace conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ inside and out. We're asking him for alms. He's saying, I want to make you like his son. We settle for far too less in our Christian lives. Stop settling for mediocrity. We ask God to fix a problem. God says, I'm giving you heaven. Does the Holy Spirit dwell in you or does he not dwell in you? Is it real or is it not real? He gives you himself. And do you know what it looks like? He describes what it looks like throughout Scripture. You know the image that we're being conformed to? Because he says things like, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gives us things like 1 Corinthians 13. More than saying, live up to this, he's saying, this is what you are being conformed to. God is love, and you're being conformed to this manifestation, this picture of love, this conformity of love that is patient and long-suffering, is kind and never rude. It's not irritable. It doesn't boast. It doesn't envy. It is seeking the good of others. He's conforming you and changing your personality into that. Or how about the Beatitudes? How about a great picture of the personality of Jesus there? One who is poor in spirit and mourns and is meek and hungers and thirsts for righteousness and is pure in heart and is merciful and loves his enemies. That's what you're being conformed to. Do you see your desperate need of grace, or is it just a little need of grace? I don't know about you, I need huge grace. But I want to show you something. This grace is a living reality right now. Because we see the reality of grace and the fact that the miracle demonstrates for us the power of God and that the Messiah has indeed come. Palm Sunday was real. The king may not have looked like it on a colt, on a donkey. In humility, voluntarily giving himself over to the authorities in order to be crucified. 
but the power of God has been, and we see it in changed lives. Verse 6, Peter says, I, I have no silver and gold to give you, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the miracle's done, not in Peter or John's power, but in the powerful name of Jesus. The power of God that's fulfilled prophecy because earlier on in Isaiah chapter 35, we read, then the lame will leap like a deer. And what is the result of this man's healing? Verse 8, what is he doing? He's walking and jumping. He's the lame leaping like a deer. And this jumping is a vivid, wonderful picture of someone. What is Christianity? Christianity is about regeneration. Do you recognize when you become a Christian, you go from death to life? You go from somebody who was dead to the realities of life to one who's alive. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are we living the new birth? Are we living the new life? This jumping is a vivid, wonderful picture of new life, and it shows us that the reign of grace is a present reality. It's not just future. He doesn't just sit there and say, Jesus, I'll wait, I'll wait for Jesus to come back. Then I'll leap like a deer. He begins now. And I would imagine some of his leaping was probably pretty awkward looking. Probably wasn't all that graceful. I don't know about you, but my leaping and my vivid living a lot of times is awkward. I try to love people and I mess up all the time. I mean, I'm trying to enter people's lives and I mess up more times than you can imagine. The key is, are we vividly continuing to live? Or are we so afraid of failure that we're a living, walking death? Don't be afraid to mess up. You're forgiven. You're right in the sight of God. The reality of the reign of grace. And look how he experiences it. This to me is amazing. How is it received? How is the power of God experienced? Verse 7 says, And he, meaning Peter, took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. See, divine power here comes in the act of faith. Not just simply before. It's interesting to notice that he did not feel the power before he got up. Kind of like, all right, I'm going to sit back and wait. And in the name of Jesus, you're saying, I'll wait. That's it. When you give me the power, and I can be certain of it, and I can have every I dotted and every T crossed, and I know exactly how this, and I'm totally in control of this of it, then I'll step out. When I know exactly what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, uh-uh. That's not how faith works. He had had to agree to try to stand before God's healing worked. As he reached out his hand, and God's the one doing this all the time. But recognize, Paul comments on this, his instruction. God's strength comes to us as we believe, as we embrace. Paul said in Philippians 2, verse 12, continue, he's speaking to Christians, to work out your salvation. Sounds like we have to do something. Sounds like there's a partnership going on for Christians who are already regenerate and made alive. Continue to work out your salvation with, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Sounds to me like 100% you and 100% God. For the Christian. God is at work as we work. See, do you believe that? Practical issue is, what issues of obedience do you have to work on that God through his spirit, through his word, are saying, in the name of Jesus, I say to you, rise up and walk. 
And you're sitting back, arms folded, going, not until I see how you work. I'm not getting up yet. Uh-uh. Doesn't look too safe. Doesn't look too manageable. I've seen how you work. Have you seen my friend over here? I'm not sure I want a part of that. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. What is God saying to you in the name of Jesus to rise up and walk? And lastly, and I'll be very, very brief here, because this is much more where we're going next week is too. What is the effect of grace? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what did he say? He says, I received the grace of God, and the grace of God was not in vain. The grace of God will always have an effect. The grace of God always is a power, and it is always a power that propels us outward. See, look at this. The man was walking and praising God, and what is he doing? See, here's where I have good news for you and then a challenge for you. Here's the good news. What was he doing? He was worshiping and living. Ordinary life. So that means I have good news. You don't have to get on the plane with Don at the end of this week and go back to France. You might be invited to, and some of you, God might be calling you to that, but you don't have to. But here's what you do have to do. You do live, you do have to live out of the propulsion of the power of grace and rise up and walk before others, before your families, your neighbors, people you work with, your community and your city, because then look what happens. Look what a movement of the gospel, people living under the redemptive reign of grace does. Verse 10 says the people were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, we know what that wonder and amazement looks like if you read through the rest of the book of Acts. There's a lot of persecution that goes with that. There's a lot of people coming to Christ. There are a lot of churches growing. There's, there's a lot of, because the healing comes progressively, there's a lot of mess with it. The gospel will stir everything up. You'll have dirt everywhere. It's not pretty. For control freaks like me, this is a dangerous message. Part of me doesn't like this message. I want everything neat and in control. And that's not what the gospel does but it does produce wonder and amazement. I want to ask you this question. If Spruce Creek Church were no longer here, if God closed our doors and shut our doors, would anybody notice? Would the city of Port Orange, would Daytona Beach, would New Smyrna Beach, would Volusia County, would anybody notice that we weren't here? Is there anybody, if you weren't here, See, is there anybody who, because of heaven being in your life, because you're a Christian, a touch and a taste of heaven being in your life, and the overflow, is there anybody that your life is confronting? Maybe they're perplexed. Maybe they're confused. That's a part of amazement. I mean, I've been watching the NCAA basketball tournament and stuff, and I look at those guys sometimes with wonder and amazement. But sometimes it's a lot of confusion. I go, how in the world did that guy do that? He just dribbled it this way and this way and this way and went this way and he slam dunked it. And I'm amazed by that. Does your life, does the reality of heaven in your life cause anybody to be filled with wonder and amazement? Does the overflow of your life, and I'm talking your ordinary life, the quality, the fruit of the Spirit, the organic fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, and the rest. The reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory, is that, and I don't know about you, but that to me sounds radical. Can you imagine a group of people living that kind of non-defensive love, that kind of fullness of joy even through suffering, patient and long-suffering even as you go through medical tests and cancer and people dying and grief and loss. doesn't mean a superficial happiness, but you go through a long-suffering where you're going, I don't get it, it doesn't make sense to me, but I'm still lamenting and crying out to God. A self-control, a faithfulness, a gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. To me, that's radical. And that's the impact of Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter Sunday. And I'm not going to leave Pentecost. Because God has poured out His Spirit. This is the overflow of the heart, the overflow of a life lived underneath the redemptive reign of God. Are you living in and under the reign of grace? Let's pray. I pray, Lord, that your word, through your speaking it, has acted upon us to impact and change and touch our lives. And I can't say exactly how that's going to do in each one of us. Maybe we're looking and there's somebody we need to love in a different way or somebody we need to forgive or someone we need to reach out to. Maybe there's a circumstance in our life that we have been asking you for physical healing or to change that circumstance. We're asking you to clean the window and you're building a palace. And we need to, in a sense, go, God, what kind of palace? Maybe the bigger healing you're doing in our life is the character change, conforming us to the image of Christ. From the throne comes newness of life, and I pray that you bring newness to my heart, to our hearts, and to our church's life as well. In Jesus' name, amen.